0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing?
0: Hi, Michael. I'm doing okay. I feel like it's been a while since we've done this together.
1: Am now I keep, imagining that? They keep switching your days. I think you did Thursday last week, didn't you? I've I got no yes, idea what's going on. I just I hope someone turns I mean. up at 6pm every time <laughs> I'm hosting. Um, but it's, it's been going well so far. Um, coming up later tonight, a shocking and tragic video that exposes the IDF's brutality in Gaza. Um, a Tory MP has called for Sunak to resign, warning the Conservatives face a wipeout at the next election. And we look at the prayer ban um, that's been instituted at a London school and the court case Um, that has followed. Stay tuned for all of that. Now though, the first story. Donald Trump has won a second Republican presidential primary, this time in New Hampshire, and it's a record-breaking victory for the former president, making him the only Republican candidate to ever win the first two contests of the race to be the party's presidential nominee. Trump took around 55% of the vote in New Hampshire. His closest contender was Nikki Haley, who had hoped for a win in a more moderate state that trailed nearly 12 points behind Trump with 43%. In New Hampshire, voters who aren't registered with any party, as well as registered Republicans, are allowed to vote. Um, and as a sizable portion of Haley's vote came from independence. Um, so that means um, that the count, you know, doesn't necessarily even reflect how unpopular she is with many signed up Republicans, right? So this was the race that should have gone pretty well for Nikki Haley. And it hasn't gone well enough. However, despite the loss, um, Haley has continued to, or has vowed, sorry, to continue to fight for the nomination. That's a fact that seemed to annoy Donald Trump, who used his speech to give Haley this warning about the Democrats.
2: These are very dishonest people, and you're always fighting them. And just a little note to Nikki, she's not going to win. But if she did... She would be under investigation by those people in 15 minutes. And I could tell you five reasons why already. Not big reasons. A little stuff that she doesn't want to talk about. But she will be under investigation within minutes.
1: A little stuff that she doesn't want to talk about. Uh very interesting way of campaigning. Um I'm joined now by Ben Burgess, host of Give Them an Argument and a columnist at Jacobin. Great to have you on. Um Ben, is the nomination now in the bag for Donald Trump?
3: I think it is in the bag, uh because for some of the reasons you just said, New Hampshire was by far the best state for uh for Nikki Haley. Uh certainly much better than Iowa, certainly much better than her home state of South Carolina which is about to come up. And if you look at how badly she did there and how, you know, how badly she did there in parts of the state where you would have expected her to do better, uh, it, it's really very unclear what possible path she could have, except just kind of hoping that Donald Trump has a heart attack or goes to prison in time. So that was
1: the, the other theory I'd heard, that maybe she sort of had given up on sort of winning the, the primary in an ordinary way, but really wanted to stay in the race in case something came up, as you say, Donald Trump has a stroke or ends up um, having some sort of legal worry that means he can no longer stand. And if she's still in the race at the point of the Republican National Convention, um, then she can sort of be anointed the candidate. Do you, do you find that plausible at all? I know you're not Donald Trump's doctor, so it'll be difficult for you to sort of comment on on that side of the equation. Um, but, but do you think there is anything that could possibly stop Donald Trump now?
3: Certainly, getting arrested a bunch of times isn't gonna do it because we've been there, and uh it didn't do it right like the man has ninety one indictments and uh and he's he's still kicking, so that's not gonna be it uh, I'm not his doctor, but uh I do note that he seems to be a very old man who's already had covid uh pretty badly he was hospitalized in twenty twenty and who seems to have a diet of mostly fast food. So maybe it's not impossible that that option could come to pass.
1: And what kind of campaign is, is Donald Trump um, running? Now I have to say, you know, everything I say is, is, is on YouTube forever. So when I get sort of predictions wrong, um, they're there to, you know, for everyone to see, but I remember having a conversation with Aaron Bastani last year where I was sort of saying, you know, I can't see this going too well for Donald Trump in the presidential election because all he talks about now is an election being stolen and his court cases. You know, when he stood in 2016, he was talking about, you know, I disagreed with the issues he was talking about, immigration, building a wall, um, but or, you know, elites. But they were issues that sort of the general public care about. And it has seemed that sort of since 2020, he spent a lot of time talking about, you know, pretty niche issues that most people don't believe, i.e. the election was stolen, or that most people don't care about his sort of, you know, beef with with, with the courts in various states. But that doesn't seem to have come to pass. I mean, he, he does seem to have sort of some message discipline where he is talking about, you know, the country and issues that voters might care about. Am I correct now, even if I was wrong last year?
3: I think so. Uh, so I think Trump is pretty good at uh, at figuring out what people will like it if he, uh, if he talks about and sort of steering towards that, uh, whatever... You know, he might or might not believe to whatever extent you think Donald Trump has beliefs, you know, and and the way that we normally understand that. Uh, but you know, for example, in New Hampshire, he uh, he ran ads about how Nikki Haley wanted to cut social security, right? He actually uh, he actually did one of those on uh, MSNBC maybe in an attempt to uh, cut into uh, democratic crossover votes uh, for uh, for Haley uh and you know he did he did say things like that back in in 2016 that you know that he wasn't going to touch entitlements that of course is president he uh he actually did you know he tried to cut medicaid um and you know in many ways just governed like a very normal Wall Street Reaganite, you know, kind of, uh, of, a Republican. Uh, but, uh, but I, I think that he is fully capable of counting on people having short memories about all of that, or maybe not having tracked those details at the time that it was happening. And, um, and also, uh, also he's, he's running against Joe Biden, who's only slightly older than him, but, uh, seems much older than him. Um, and, you know, he does, you know, he does have quite a bit to, to work with, right. I, th- I think that, you know, I think between, uh, anxieties about what's going on with foreign policy, Ukraine, um, and, you know, the economy, inflation, like I, I do, I do think that, you know, a lot could happen, of course, in the next several months between now and, and the general election. But I don't find it impossible to imagine Uh, Trump, um, you know, pivoting to more of a winning message, stopping, you know, whining about his court cases and the allegedly stolen election all the time, which probably plays better in Republican uh, Republican primary voters, you know, the general election voters, and uh, and yeah, and and pulling it out, right? I mean, like we keep being told that. Oh, well, there's forever until November, anything could change. And that's still true. But also, there's a lot less time between now and then than there was when we started being told that.
1: I like that. I thought you were going to go into sort of Kamala Harris, the passage of time. The great thing about time is that it moves forward, not backwards. Um, You you kept it more concise than she usually does. Um, Let's move on to Joe Biden. Stay with us, Ben. We've got a couple of clips because while Trump was winning his New Hampshire New Hampshire primary Joe Biden was in Virginia speaking at a rally on abortion rights and that's when this happened How many kids have you killed the How many women have you
0: killed
4: Okay God,
1: So that that scene, we've seen it before of someone sort of chanting about Gaza and then everyone sort of saying, four more years, which to me seems a little bit distasteful. But that was just one of multiple interruptions that took place during Biden's speech. And those protests may be representative of more widespread disquiet concerning Biden's position on Palestine, especially among younger Democrats. Now, Michigan is a state that swung from Trump to Biden in 2020. And the day before the protest, we just showed you a CBS reporter asked a number of Democrats in that state how they planned to vote later this year. Um, Here's what one said.
5: Saba, you said reproductive
6: rights are a huge factor for you, but that you probably won't vote for President Biden.
4: I think it would be hypocritical of me to use reproductive rights as a way to justify voting for Biden when Biden is aiding and sending military aid to Israel, which is airstriking Gaza and blocking humanitarian aids, leading to women there who are pregnant um, either getting C-sections without anesthesia, not being able to be provided with prenatal care.
1: I've seen this sort of blowing up on, on US Twitter. Lots of people sort of on the left saying we're not going to vote for Joe Biden because of Gaza. Then lots of centrists who are saying that's ridiculous. I'm the only person. Well, they, they don't say this, but, you know, the argument is even if Joe Biden's bad, Donald Trump might be worse. Donald Trump, of course, I mean, I think we'd probably just sort of say, you know, pressure I can imagine him sort of pressuring Egypt to take um, a bunch of people from Gaza and then sort of like really pressuring people to accept something along the line of the Abraham Accords. I mean, he did have that sort of deal of the century, didn't he? He's not going to be a friend of Palestinian rights. But can you talk about that? And I suppose there's there's two questions here, isn't there? So one is, Will this impact the election or is this sort of more about discourse than it is about you know votes on the day? And then two, where do you stand on this sort of question of, of how people outraged um, at, at Biden's position and approach to Gaza? How should they vote when it, when it comes around to the elections?
3: Yeah, so it is worth saying, uh, like you kind of gestured out there, that uh, Trump was very, very bad on this as president, the whole point of the Abraham Accord, uh, besides, you know, building an alliance against Iran, was uh, to, you know, do a version of diplomatic normalization uh, between Israel and the Arab states that froze out the Palestinians. So the occupation could just continue forever. And that wasn't considered to be an outstanding issue. Uh, interfering uh, with that normalization, uh, he moved the U.S. Embassy to uh, to Jerusalem, uh, which, You know, is something that um, that all of these uh, all of these past you know well known peace Nixon advocates of Palestinian rights like Nixon and Reagan and George W. Bush uh, had never done um, because you know that would be sort of U.S. sign off on Israel's uh, illegal annexation of Palestinian East Jerusalem. Uh, You know, he he did everything Netanyahu. Wanted at, at at all times, right? Uh, so so Trump was god awful about this, and I think there's, I think it's reasonable to think that he would even be a little bit worse. But the problem with that argument, you know, you mentioned my home state of Michigan, which has this uh, extremely large uh, Arab American population, and uh, as as much as I think there is a you know a harm reduction case uh, for voting for uh, for Biden. Despite everything, uh, and you could even reasonably surmise that Trump would be even worse on uh, the ongoing, you know, slaughter and you know, et- uh, ethnic cleansing. Ultimately, it looks like in Gaza uh, than, than Biden is. Uh, that is an awfully hard argument to make to people who uh, who may, in some cases, actually have like cousins. Uh, who have been killed in the last few months that oh, I'm sorry that the president uh, helped kill your family, but uh, you know Trump would have done even more so I mean it's its it's just very, very difficult to uh, to to make that argument you know as as much as there you know as much as there is a uh, you know there is a rational case for it right so I mean if if i uh, if I were still living in Michigan, which is a swing state I live in California, it does not matter at all. Uh, how I vote? There's there's zero chance of Donald Trump winning the state's electoral votes. But you know, if I still lived in Michigan, I might suck it up and vote for him anyway. Uh, you know to uh, to uh, you know on the basis of that argument, I might be able to get myself there by the time that November happens. But I think that uh, people the sort of centrist argument that oh, it's just ridiculous, it's just silly uh, that people won't vote for for Biden. Or can you know seriously consider not voting for Biden is I think kind of tone deaf at best, and at worst maybe reminds me a little bit of that uh, Bertolt Brecht poem about how maybe the um, you know the government should dissolve the people and elect another. I mean, if if you don't have, uh, you know, it's it's the job of politicians to appeal to to voters, and if there is this much of a mountain of disgust and revulsion that they have to climb over to vote for you, right? That's, that's not a defect in them, right? You know, you need to be doing something different.
1: It's very depressing, the whole situation, really, isn't it? Um, finally, um, I suppose, you know, in in the UK, I think everyone's sort of just looking at this in disbelief. I can't believe this sort of failed state is going to elect Donald Trump again, is sort of the, the attitude. Um, looking at sort of elite opinion in the United States, it seems like, there's a bit of a move to sort of come round to the idea of a second Donald Trump term, not in the sense that sort of people are actively supporting him in sort of the American elite, but they're sort of saying, maybe it's not going to be that bad. So I'm thinking of Jamie Demon or Diamond. So he's the, the chairman of JP Morgan Chase. And he was in Davos very recently sort of saying, you know what, Donald Trump wasn't that bad. He got some things right. Uh, are we sort of seeing a process now where you know, the business elite in America and I suppose many people in America are sort of just saying, okay, Trump, very likely it's going to happen again, or at least, you know, it's a, it's a towing cost as to whether that will happen again. We're going to have to get used to it and sort of accommodate ourselves to that possibility.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of them probably are. I, I mean, this is, um, you know, I mean, look, people like that by and large did very well in, uh, the first Trump presidency. Um, You know that as much as during 2016, many of them worried that he would be too chaotic and destabilizing, uh, and and I think those worries definitely resurfaced at the tail end of his presidency, and especially with you know Stop the Steal and uh, the January 6th riot. It's uh, when you know you actually had like the Chamber of Commerce at one point uh, calling for uh, for the Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment uh to to remove uh to remove trump from from office in his you know his final weeks in office uh, the fact remains that overall nothing much happened that was bad for those people during trump's four years in office uh that you know he he posted a lot of crazy things on twitter uh he uh he he certainly tried to you know and at some point succeeded in doing some very awful and performatively cruel things um, to, uh, to uh, immigrant families, to people coming in from Muslim countries. Uh, but by and large, in the bulk of how he governed, uh, he governed in pretty much the way that Mitt Romney would have if he had been elected president in 2012. Uh, it was a four-year orgy of tax cuts and deregulation, uh, union-busting, uh, and of course uh, all those people are gonna like that right uh, and and so I, I think that it's it's maybe not that surprising that they've um, you know that they've they've come around a little bit you know that they would prefer somebody who seemed more normal and less chaotic but uh, there there's also a limit to which they're actually willing to sort of go all out to stop this from happening because because we already saw it it already happened for four years uh, and we know how it went and we know that it was it was good for them. And and I I guess maybe the last thing I would say about this is just, yeah, okay, Donald Trump is a particularly sort of uh luridly repulsive conservative in his mode of presentation. Uh, but there is a question about how different he really is when push comes to shove from the Ron DeSantis's, the Nikki Haleys of the world, and um. You know, which is bad enough, right? From my perspective, right? I think I think all of those people are awful, but it does make me wonder when I hear things about, uh, you know, the you know U.S. from a British perspective being a failed state that would elect this guy. It's like I I, I don't know. I mean, the, the Tories have been in power there for how long?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't be too smart. I apologise. You've you got me there. Um, ben Birch, it's been great to have you on. Thank you to you and your cat for joining us this evening. Um, I know this is going to be a very long and gruelling campaign, so I'm sure we'll have you back on again soon. Straight on to our next story. Israel is still denying that it's breaking international law in Gaza, and that's despite a growing number of alleged war crimes being committed on camera. This video is filmed by ITV, and it contains scenes some might find disturbing.
2: These pictures were filmed by a cameraman working for ITV News in Gaza. As he moved forwards towards the combat zone, he noticed this group of men doing their utmost to appear non-threatening, trying to proceed with care. They wanted to reach two other family members and get them out of harm's way
5: the
2: interview complete our cameraman walked away and then this happened The interviewee had been shot and fatally wounded. You can see them place their flag on his chest. As he was carried away, the white flag was turning red. Carry him, they've killed him, yells this youth. Then suddenly, more gunfire. They scream at a child telling him to find cover By this stage the man's wife his widow has heard what happened And as she rushes to the scene, she meets the party, carrying away the body on a makeshift stretcher. When they're satisfied they're a safe distance away, they stop. And the morning starts. These tragic scenes have been repeated time and time again since this war began. At one point, they tried CPR. But there was no bringing him back, this husband and father.
1: Just that footage. And you've got to think, right? This, the camera person hadn't gone there because this event had happened. It wasn't, you know, oh, oh this, this event has happened. There's been uh, an Israeli soldier who's um, shot an innocent guy with a white flag. Let's go film this. No, this, this just, ha- you know, he, he was there to do an interview. And it just so happened you know, coincidentally that, oh, by the way, the guy he interviewed has now just been, been killed by the Israelis, even though he was waving a white flag. And you've got to think, if this happens on, you know, the few times when there's a camera person doing an interview, imagine how many times this is happening when the camera isn't there, right? You, you've got to think, if this is happening, you know, you, you just take any random moment and someone's dead in Gaza, killed by the Israelis. In, in this case, waving a white flag. Like, this is what our government is supporting, and the opposition, by the way. And the man killed in that footage was 51-year-old Ramzi Abu Salul. Now, he sold children's clothes for a living. Responding to the video, an Israeli government spokesperson said, This, it is imperative to emphasize that the alarming, libelous, and gross mischaracterization of the war with these despicable accusations can only be deemed as an extension of Hamas propaganda, effort to defame the IDF and undermine our objective to dismantle Hamas and ensure the terrorist entity never again holds the power to build a terrorist army, invade Israel, murder, burn, rape, and abduct Israelis. Obviously, they're calling this a mischaracterisation. This was filmed on TV, right? And this is an accusation they're making against ITV. So now ITV are Hamas too, right? It's just ridiculous. The filmed killing of Abu Salul also came up in Prime Minister's questions today. This was the SNP's Stephen Flynn.
4: Last night, as Tory MPs were once again fighting amongst themselves, the public were sat at home watching John Irvin of ITV News a report on footage from Gaza of an unarmed Palestinian man walking yeah. under a white flag being shot and killed by the IDF. Yeah. Prime Minister, such an act constitutes a war crime, yeah. does it not?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Mr. Speaker, we've been absolutely consistent that international humanitarian law should be respected and civilians uh, will be, should be protected. I've made that point expressly to Prime Minister Netanyahu and the foreign secretaries in the region this week making exactly the same point. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom to rise to that dispatch box and tell the people of these isles and elsewhere that shooting an unarmed man Walking under a white flag is a war crime. Now, now in recent weeks, this house has acted with urgency and intent following an ITV drama. The question is, will this house now show the same urgency and intent following this ITV news report? And finally, back a ceasefire in Gaza.
1: It was a very good point, well made. Um, Dahlia, can I get your comments, I suppose, both on that ITV report and then um, that intervention from Stephen Flynn in Parliament?
0: It's very clear um, to anyone who's been paying attention, especially over the past three months, that all Israel has is deception. All it has is denial. When you look at the difference between the Palestinian voice and the Israeli voice, Over the past three months, what you have emerging out of the Palestinians is just reams and reams of footage so that we can see with our own eyes the apartheid, the genocide, the ethnic cleansing, the the indiscriminate, but also very deliberately indiscriminate uh, targeting of basically everything that moves, anyone who moves, any sign of life in the Gaza Strip. We can. They are providing us at great risk to themselves. Journalists have had their entire families targeted, trying to show us so that we can see with our eyes what is happening to them. On the other side, all you have from the Israelis is these, frankly, half-arsed attempts to tell us that what we see with our own eyes is a lie that we cannot believe what we are seeing and hearing. And if we do believe what we are seeing and hearing, we're Hamas. I mean, it's patently obvious. It's patently obviously ridiculous for them to be claiming that just because ITV happened to, as you mentioned, accidentally capture a very real moment that, that, that really represents the fact that, as you mentioned, there is no safe place in Gaza. There is no safe zone. There is nowhere where... A garden can go um, and know that they are protected from Israeli assault. ITV happened to capture a moment that represented that broader truth. And it's ridiculous that then... Israel can come out and basically argue that Hamas has captured ITV. I mean how powerful must Hamas be they've captured all the universities they've captured everyone who's watching their screens they've captured every they've captured the UN they've captured the ICJ they've captured the South African government they've captured ITV. Now I mean it's patently absurd and I think for me the stark contrast between not only the the relentless footage and the relentless Um, window into their own reality that the Palestinians have given us versus the obfuscation and the lying. I mean, let's not forget, in October, um, when the Al-Ahli Baptist Church was bombed, Israel came out and said, well, we would never bomb a hospital. And people in power, people in the media here parroted that possibility. And now three months later, as a result of believing that lie or indulging that lie, enabling that lie, Thirty-six hospitals in Gaza have been raised to the ground. There is not a single hospital now left in Gaza. The stark difference between the desire to expose and the desire to show versus the need to hide and obfuscate really tells us so much about the politics of life and truth that the Palestinians are engaging in, and the politics of deaths and delu- and, and lies and deception that the Israeli state is engaging in, which is part and parcel of a settler colonial um, project. Because what you have to remember, you know, what has, I think, resonated so much with so many people watching this is the fact that this man was holding a white flag, right? Which the idea is being, is the idea of saying that is, I'm not a threat, I'm unarmed. But what you have to understand, and perhaps the m- only moment that the Israeli state has actually been honest um, over the past three months was when Israeli President Isaac Herzog said that there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. It doesn't matter what kind of white flag you're holding. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a baby in an ICU unit. As far as the Israeli state is concerned, there are no innocent Palestinians in Gaza because by virtue of being alive and Palestinian in Gaza, you are a threat To the settler colonial project of Israel that Israel is pursuing. You are a threat and you are a a block to their desire to ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip. So that is why these claims to innocence and these claims to, like, they don't work because as far as the Israelis are concerned, existing as a Palestinian in this land, on their land, is guilt de facto. But you have to also ask, you know, why is it? that Israel is able to put so little effort into their desire um, and into their, 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 their intent to gaslight people into believing that the, what they are seeing and hearing is not true, is, is not real. The reason that they can be so lackluster is because they frankly know that what is true, What what they are banking on this idea that what we feel and what we perceive as ordinary people doesn't actually matter or shape what happens. All that matters is that Israel represents particular geopolitical interests in the region to essentially be an outpost of US and European colonialism in the region. And so long as they are able to fulfill that, it doesn't matter what, as far as they're concerned, it doesn't matter what we might think. The only thing that has given me any kind of of I want to say hope, but that feels so difficult to say. But is the fact that even to this, you know, three months in, people have been showing up en masse in big numbers to say that we will be heard and to say that we will not stop marching until we are able to prove the Israeli government wrong and prove that actually what we think and how we are perceiving this does matter and is going to shape what happened. But unfortunately, what we have been seeing so far is that Israel is right and Israel, that they are, Israel is able to bank on the fact that what is patently obvious doesn't matter because the likes of Rishi Sunak will stand up in the House of Commons, look us all in the eye, metaphorically, and tell us that he believes in international law. I mean, it's absurd. Um, so for me, I think that what this really represents is that Israel has nothing left but the belief that their denial and their lies will continue to be uncritically accepted by those with power, because the rest of us aren't buying it.
1: It's almost like their denial just means that Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak can then give them the benefit of the doubt. That's all they seem to need, because you know you don't have to persuade Joe Biden or Rishi Sunak. They are just desperately looking for an excuse to defend Israel to the hilt. Um, Dali, you mentioned hospitals there. We do have Um, some updates in Khan Yunis in the south of Gaza IDF forces are reportedly closing in on the NASA hospital one of the strip's few functioning hospitals left one doctor there spoke to Al Jazeera from inside that hospital
7: Israel tanks are everywhere and we are completely surrounded the situation here are more than trouble we have uh, received uh, 128 uh, injuries and uh, 56 uh, martyrs since uh, this morning. 19% of the doctors left the hospital uh, fearing for their lives. And uh, therefore the remaining of uh, the doctor have to deal uh, with more than 10 cases at a time. Most of the cases are amputation. The situation here are miserable and the smell of this everywhere. I feel like the Shifa hospital scenario are repeating itself. We are on another level of danger.
1: He feels the Shifa Hospital scenario is repeating itself now, as you'll remember, the al Shifa hospital was um in northern Gaza. It was placed under i d f siege for weeks in November, causing its operations to collapse, and thousands of displaced people, medical staff, and patients were left without fuel and supplies at least forty people died, including four premature babies. Now the situation seems even worse in the NASA hospital with hundreds of patients from across Gaza now seeking treatment there. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, it's in urgent need of medical supplies, food, and fuel. The IDF has ordered the hospital to evacuate, but Doctors Without Borders have said this about their staff there. They are currently unable to evacuate along with the thousands of people in the hospital, including 850 patients due to roads, to and from the building being either inaccessible or too dangerous. With heavy bombing and fighting moving closer to the areas surrounding NASA hospital, injured civilians will not be able to access immediate or urgent care. NASA hospital is one of two remaining hospitals in southern Gaza still able to treat critically injured patients. So one of two hospitals remaining able to treat critically injured patients and it's just been given an evacuation order. I think that's a good summary of what Israel are doing to the people of Gaza. And um, The Palestinian Red Cross has said its emergency healthcare operations are being hampered by the IDF in Khan Yunus too. Um, so they posted this, urgently Israeli occupation is surrounding Palestine Red Crescent teams inside um, the Palestine Red Crescent headquarters and Al-Amal Hospital in Khan Yunus, enforcing restrictions on movement around both the building and the hospital. Khan Yunis, of course, was once declared a safe zone by the IDF. It's now come under heavy bombing. UN worker Thomas White has described the attacks, saying this, "...fighting is escalating in Khan Yunis. Um, the UNRWA training centre sheltering tens of thousands of displaced people has just been hit. Buildings ablaze and mass casualties, safe access to from the centre has been denied for two days. People are trapped. The fighting in the city has seen thousands of Palestinians flee further south to Rafah and the Egyptian border, an area already overcrowded with displaced people." By late December, 700,000 people were registered at UN and government shelters in Deir al-Balal in central Gaza after an evacuation order on December 22nd. Many of them moved to Khan Yunis and Rafa. Last week, there were nearly 800,000 refugees in Khan Yunis. Many of them are now moving to Rafa, which is already home to nearly a million displaced Palestinians. And conditions in Rafah are extremely difficult. Large tent cities have sprung up, providing inadequate shelter against the cold and wet winter. Sanitation is poor, and food and medical equipment are in short supply. That means disease is spreading, especially among children, leading aid agencies to warn of an unfolding health catastrophe in the region. Now, it's been reported today that the International Court of Justice's provisional ruling on whether there's a risk of genocide in Gaza will be delivered on. Friday, um, so we can pray the courts will step in where politicians, or at least Western politicians, Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, have tragically refused to act. We will, of course, be giving you updates as and when um, the International Court of Justice uh, makes public its ruling. For now, um, let's move on to our next story. There is more drama brewing in the Conservative Party, as if there's nothing else the government to be getting on with. Now, this time, the Westminster lobby was tantalized by a comment piece in The Telegraph by former cabinet member Simon Clark. Clark called for his party to replace Sunak as prime minister or face a decade of decline under Starmer. This is what he says in the article. It is now beyond doubt that whilst the prime minister is far from solely responsible for our present predicament, his uninspiring leadership is the main obstacle to our recovery. Rishi Sunak has sadly gone from asset to anchor from asset to anchor. What a way with words. Um, Clark accuses Sunak of being too soft on migration, on migrants, and too complacent when it comes to supply side reforms. So sort of the classic complaints that the Tory right have about pretty much anyone. Um, And it's notable the piece was published in the Telegraph, who seem to have it in for the Prime Minister. Um, They've already published a piece on the runners and riders to replace Sunak. They suggest Penny Morden, Kemi Badenoch and Suella Braverman could all stand and the Telegraph have published a new YouGov poll which they say shows how the electorate would vote in a head-to-head between Sunak and Starmer. It will probably be a surprise to no one this turns out badly for Sunak. But they also show another poll which puts Starmer head-to-head with a new Tory leader and in this one the Tories do much better and in fact would win a convincing majority. Um, so perhaps there is hope for the Tories. There was, though, a problem with that poll. Now, there's a very difficult-to-find note on the article, so it's not obvious unless you really look for it, um, and it says this because it somewhat undermines the poll. Respondents were asked if they prefer Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, or a new conservative leader who implemented key conservative policies, including reducing small boats and immigration, cutting taxes, reducing crime, all while reducing NHS. Waiting list. Now, you might as well ask if voters prefer Keir Starmer or a flying donkey that looks like Brad Pitt. It's it's just as likely as a Tory leader that can do all of those things at the same time. So, some really dodgy statistics from the Telegraph, which they seem to be using to try and dislodge Rishi Sunak. And we won't spend too long on this though, because it's just infighting in the Conservative Party. Let's move on to a big issue, actually, that has been um, shaping debate um, in this country over the past week or so. If you tuned into GB News on Monday night, you might have caught this rather bizarre
8: exchange. It completely separates the category of prayer from other religions to the Islamic faith. is trying to attempt to set the precedent that uh, the Muslim prayer cannot be done within the privacy of one's own mind and therefore it needs a public display. And if that is the case, uh-huh. then that can be rolled out in every single workplace. It could be rolled out right across the country uh-huh. And I think it would pave the way for Britain potentially to become a, quote unquote, Muslim country. Which is, which is in
1: fact, actually, what lies beneath all this. Yes, according to Patrick Christus and former Sun editor Kelvin McKenzie, Britain is about to become a Muslim country. Now that's despite Muslims only making up 6.7% of the population. So what's caused Patrick and Kelvin to draw such a stark
8: conclusion?
1: Well, it all relates to this story, a pupil at a London school, has taken their school to court for banning them from praying. Now, the dispute has made national news in part because the head teacher at the school is a bit of a celebrity. Catherine Singh is Britain's self-styled strictest head teacher. It's an educational philosophy which she credits for the impressive results achieved by the school she founded. The school is the Michaela Community School in Wembley. Now, the ban on praying at Michaela School was instituted in March last year, and a Muslim student has now taken the school to court, claiming its policy breaches her freedom of religion. Um, So this is from the BBC. The pupil, who cannot be named for legal reasons, told the court the rule had fundamentally changed how she feels about being a Muslim in this country. She described the ban as like somebody saying they don't feel like I properly belong here, the hearing was told. Now, it's important to note, no one in this situation had been demanding the right to pray during lessons. Now, the dispute appears to be over the desires of some students to pray during break time and in the playground, um, which to me seems wholly reasonable. Right? It's your own time, you're in the playground, you should be able to pray. And Burblesing though, has hit back.
5: What ended up happening with the whole prayer situation is that our lovely school turned into one that was really quite horrible. Um, where some of the more committed Muslims, as it were, were intimidating the, the Muslims who were eating and going by the break hole food stand and stopping them from eating or intimidating them into praying. Or we noticed one girl, for instance, who never wore a hijab before, who was suddenly wearing one. So. The place became, the culture of the place changed very quickly, within days, um, from being this lovely, happy place into one which was quite aggressive and intimidating and where Muslim children were being intimidated into doing things they didn't necessarily want to do.
1: Now, I've seen people online say, rightly, I think, right that a girl starting to wear a headscarf doesn't prove very much. Now, people will often decide to wear one when they're ready. And it can't exactly happen gradually, right? You can't have a period where you're wearing half a headscarf. You're either wearing one or you aren't. So to say they suddenly started wearing a headscarf, one person, to me, doesn't prove very much. Banning prayer also seems like a bit of a blunt instrument to stop some kids from intimidating others, right? Intimidation happens in schools. You should challenge it. But should you ban everyone from from praying? It seems a little bit odd. But in the interview, Birbelsting puts this all in the context of a school ethos which values sacrifice. Those are her words. And in a highly diverse school, Burble Singh says her model of education only works when all students commit to doing the same things. For example, she gave this account of lunchtimes at her school.
5: For instance, uh, when we first started in 2014, we opened in 2014 as a new free school. um, We uh, started eating with meat, as, as any school would do. And the thing is, we have a special family lunch because we're all part of a team, we're all part of a family. And the family lunch isn't a normal canteen where people as an individual take your tray, go in and get your food and then sit down, eat your food and then leave your plate because you think all the cleaners will get it. You know, we have a very different system where the children sit down and break bread together. So they, each one has a role and there's six of them around a the table. One of them goes to get the food and brings the pot of food and serves it out with another one bringing the plates to put the food on. And one of them sets out the cutlery and they pour the water and so on. And then at the end, one of them cleans up with a cloth and they all have these roles to share family dinner like you would do at home with your family. And this, of course, teaches those children who perhaps don't have the luck of being at home with their families in the evenings because perhaps mum is working a couple of jobs or whatever it is, you don't have family dinner, they have it with us. We all started by eating meat. Some children eat meat but no pork. Some children eat meat but don't beef. This is a religious divide. You know, you've got the Muslims, you've got the Hindus, you've got children who don't eat meat at all. And then we laid them out accordingly. But then I looked at the at the lunch hall, and I saw that everyone was divided according to race and religion. It was awful. And I thought, we can't divide the children up like this. So we changed, and we became vegetarian.
1: My position on this is that I don't think you should get people to sort of choose between their, their religion and going to a particular school. So it seems overboard to me to, to ban praying for anyone. But that clip, you know, the whole interview, actually, with Catherine Burlesing is very interesting. And that clip did sort of make me think, okay, this isn't actually you know, it, it might have an effect, which is unconscionable, but it doesn't seem to just be motivated by bigotry because this is, you know, she is actually making everyone make a sacrifice. They only eat vegetarian food in that school. So it's, it's very different from sort of if if you were, I mean, may, I think they have these sort of debates in France where it's sort of like, we're, we're not going to serve um, kosher food or halal food. This is, you know, a secular country, so you can eat the meat you're given. She's saying, no, we're, we're all only going to eat vegetarian food so everyone can eat together. I thought it was quite interesting.
0: I mean, first of all, neither Calvin McKenzie or Catherine Berbalsing are like serious characters, right? Calvin McKenzie, as he should never be allowed to forget, was famously the editor of The Sun when The Sun printed those disgusting lies and bigoted lies about um, uh, Liverpool football fans urinating on and stealing from dead um, people during the Hillsborough disaster. Catherine Burblesang, Sing, sorry, Burblesing seems to be very much, you know, her. I mean, she's pretty much like an avatar in these kind of like right wing culture wars. Like whenever there's a culture war going, she comes in and throws her two cents in. I do think it's very interesting because firstly, with this prayer issue and the, the headscarf issue, look, there is no world in which you can tell me that there is any kind of social cohesion benefit To telling children that they can't take ten or fifteen minutes out during their lunch break to go and pray, the whole with the headscarf. I mean, headscarves are a people wear headscarves because they feel like it aligns with their spiritual expression. We would not be having this conversation if it was a Christian child that or a Christian student had decided to start wearing a cross. Like we simply wouldn't be having these conversations, and this is where racism and Islamophobia in particular, and these these kind of moral panics, which, I mean, it's a stone's throw away from great replacement theory stuff, which is this idea that there is a concerted conspiracy to replace white Christian people with, you know, people of color, people who aren't Christian, and that it's like, a, it's a concerted conspiracy to do this kind of replacement. And it's very much a, a galvanizing project amongst the far right. This whole idea that Britain is about to become a Muslim country because some student wanted to wear a hijab or a headscarf.
1: I think the Patrick Christus, Kelvin McKenzie sort of story is very great replacement. I'm not sure the Catherine Singh mm. sort of argument well, is is great replacement. It seems more sort of like a, a, a dogmatism about sort of multiculturalism. It's right.
0: No, but I think the difference is, is that what she's doing... Is, firstly, the reason that I say it's got the shades of that is because the point she's making is that all of a sudden a couple of Muslim students were on this campaign of intimidation to force other Muslim students to become more pious and to create this general kind of atmosphere of intimidation to convert or to push or to persuade people to participate in their version of religion that's the kind of thing that she was trying to implicate and her what she's trying to do is she's taking what is frankly normal and innocuous behavior which is that some students when they're at school become more interested in their religion or more spiritually kind of connected to their religion and express that in various ways and saying but when these people do it it's sinister it's um it's it's expansionist it's threatening you know, and I think the reason she then brings in that sleight of hand with the um the next story about you know eating all together because the the principle of that story is completely different. The principle of that story is that there are you know minority needs around you know eating certain kinds of meat or eating meat that is prepared in certain ways, and in order to be more inclusive to those. We just created something that would work for everyone so that everyone felt able to come to school as themselves. But the reason that she doesn't attach something sinister to that is because it's not just about Muslims. It's about the needs of Hindu students. It's about the needs of Jewish students. It's about the needs of, you know, students who come from good white middle-class families but happen to be vegetarian. And so, but when it's something that ju- just concerns Muslim students... That's when it becomes sinister. That's when it becomes a threat to our norms. That's when it becomes this small cabal of people are trying to change our culture. So really, I don't think that those two stories were doing what she thought they were doing. What she was doing was saying that, you know, inclusion is only threatening when it is only, you know, only addressing the needs of Muslim students. But when there's other, you know, minority um minority needs that aren't currently in the thralls of a moral panic, which you know, Britain is currently in the grips of an Islamophobic moral panic, then suddenly it doesn't feel threatening, but it just feels practical. It's entirely practical to let Muslim students pray in their break time. There's nothing sinister or mm. impractical about that, but her framing of it is that it is.
1: And yeah, that's why I think yeah.
0: that's why I think it kind of locks into this idea that there is something sinister and threatening about muslim people existing as muslims in the west.
1: So in in the rest of the interview what she said is that they she wouldn't give a prayer room over um to anyone because how the school works is that you you walk in single file through the corridors um and you you know you're never allowed to go through the corridors like, unattended. And so she was sort of saying it would be practically difficult if after lunch all the muslims sort of have to go to a prayer room and then to be honest it does sound a bit ridiculous and then she's saying they started praying outside and then there was a petition and people sort of saying you're an islamophobic because you don't have a prayer room and then this was all to be honest the more i think about it the more it is a little bit ridiculous i wouldn't necessarily say though that she is an unserious person because the school does get results you know she has she has done something impressive very... even if we disagree with her
0: i think it's very interesting that like i mean also i do think that getting good results doesn't necessarily mean that you're Students are like well-adjusted and happy people. I mean, it's good results according to very... We're not going to go into the education philosophy of that. But I do think it's very interesting that we don't really tend to hear from the teachers because at the end of the day, it's the teachers in those schools that are getting those results. And there are schools that get good results that don't run their schools in this like incredibly strange way where like you can't even make accommodations to have some students go... I mean, how does anything if if you can't have a situation where students can go to a prayer room during lunch, then your school doesn't really function logistically as far as I'm concerned. But I I do actually think that it is interesting that we don't ever seem to hear from the actual teachers who are the people that are in those classrooms getting those results. I would really like to hear from them, um, because what we do here is you know, Catherine Bergelsang, who seems to be, you know, who who is very ideologically committed to projecting this very particular idea of how education and schools should run and what is threatening education and school. And she obviously uses the fact that she has this kind of connection by being this headmistress, um, you know, in order to bolster that. But we don't, I don't know if we hear much about actually what are the mechanics of that from a teacher's perspective.
1: I mean, we don't normally hear from head teachers. So, sort of <laughs> it's surprising to see a head teacher having this many interviews. So, if we then had all the teachers as well and all this, I don't know. I think it's interesting, though, because, you know, I also see people say it is somewhat selective, even though she says it's not selective. But clearly, she has taken a lot of working class kids in an in inner city school, and they are number one on sort of like the most progress that kids make in the school. So, I'm not saying I want schools to necessarily be like that, but I think potentially it's a bit of a reach to say she's not a serious person because I do think she ha- does have some claim to have achieved something because obviously the head teacher hires the, the teachers, don't they? Um, one thing we can definitely agree, though, on, and whatever you think of Catherine Babelsing, it goes without saying that Patrick Christis and Kelvin McKenzie on GB News were talking absolute horseshit. Um, let's just watch that short clip
8: again with the context you've now heard. It completely separates the category of prayer from other religions to the Islamic faith is trying to attempt to set the precedent that uh, the Muslim prayer cannot be done within the privacy of one's own mind and therefore it needs a public display. And if that is the case, uh-huh. then that can be rolled out in every single workplace, it could be rolled out right across the country, uh-huh. and I think it would pave the way for Britain potentially to become a quote-unquote Muslim country. Which is, which is in fact actually what lies beneath all this.
1: It's completely insane, right? Patrick Christ is there worried that soon will be a Muslim country because people might be able to pray in their workplaces. Um, now we we do have um, employment law about this kind of things. It's not very sinister. It's a decent compromise. Um, it's set out by Krona. They're a business compliance consultancy firm. Obviously, they didn't make the law, but they sort of summarised it for um, employers. In fact, so it says: law does not specify that employers must provide a prayer room. However if a quiet place is available and allowing its use for prayer would not cause problems for other workers or for the business, the employer should agree to it being used for religious observance. Where an employee's religion requires the observance of particular prayer times during the working day, you should respect this if possible and if taking an action won't impact on your business. Now that, to me, is just so unscary. Right? That is not the sign that we're about to become a quote-unquote Muslim country what that even um, means. So it seems to me Patrick and Kelvin, you should just stop being such snowflakes. Let's go on to our next story. The Institute for Economic Affairs is one of the many right-wing think tanks in the UK that are omnipresent in our media, but rather secretive about the source of their funds. Now, one of their number, Reem Ibrahim, was on Politics Live with George Mombio debating the importance of economic growth when this happened.
6: I would be interested in how you would like to measure general well-being because ultimately I think we all want the world to be a better place. We all want the country to be a better place to live in. But ultimately I think that is done not through more government but less. And I actually do think that by allowing businesses and allowing those individuals to trade with one another, that's how we can achieve that kind of growth. And I I, I I, don't think that growth is a bad thing. I think growth is a very positive thing. It's very politically charged. Both parties seem to think that they have an idea of how to get there. Mm. But ultimately if we're actively implementing Implementing policies that are not going to be supporting the way in which the economy is growing. We can't. We, we've got to stop talking about growth in well, that way. Well, of
4: course, of course, you want to rip down regulations. Of course, you don't care about the natural world because you're from the Institute of Economic <laughs> Affairs, which is funded by <laughs> oligarchs and corporations. George. Yes, and I should be, and actually, okay. the BBC should be as well because the BBC says mm-hmm. that the funding and affiliations of the organisations which come onto its programmes should be revealed. But the IEA pointedly and continually refuses to reveal who funds it. When we find out who funds you, we discover it's oil companies, it's tobacco companies, okay, it's, it's George, the most ruthless and rapacious well, companies you are, on earth, George, and you're their spokesperson. Now,
1: this has been a talking point sort of, in the British media for a very, very long time. You know, the, the, the Institute for Economic Affairs and these right-wing think tanks don't make clear who's funding them. And I have to say, I suppose just partly because of the passage of time, I ended up getting a bit like, oh, yeah, I know this, let's move on. You know, like when you've heard a story, when you've sort of heard a controversy so many times, you can sort of have, yeah, I get it now. What's kind of changed this is I watched this week, Big Oil versus the World. It's actually quite an old documentary, but it's on iPlayer at the moment. And what it sort of lays out is how there was a consensus on climate change, sort of in the early 80s, late 70s. And then what you got was Big Oil um, essentially funding loads and loads of think tanks to basically flood... The, the whole media space with bullshit, right? And and that, I think, did have a material impact in slowing down our response to climate change. Probably lots of people will die um, because those lobby groups were set up and were funded um, by those oil executives, those oil companies. And then people sort of did pose as independent, skeptical scientists, right? When actually they were just doing the work of corporate interests, you know, and it will have a terrible effect for all of us. You also might say, well, why do, why do these people need to be funded? You know, any it's not it's not expensive to go on Politics Live. Like, I go on Politics, well, I don't get invited anymore, but I go on some of these shows, you know, and I, I don't need any sort of dark funding to do it, because all you need to do is have some ideas and turn up on time. But it is the case, I think, with the IEA, etc. They have an office which is right by... Um, all of those studios, so right by the Politics Live studio, right by the Sky studio, sort of in the midst of of Westminster. So they're always around the corner. And I do think it's the case that as a producer, you know that there's this organization where people are a five-minute walk away from you. The company has enough funding to sort of strategically invest in media training for all of their staff. And so for all of these media companies, it's just perfect, right? Oh, we need a right-wing opinion, and we need some balance. Let's go to those people who are five minutes down the road. We'll answer the phone, you know, any hour of the day, and are all media trained, right? So the funding definitely does put them at an advantage. Not everyone can afford um, a central London office right next to all the major TV studios. We can't, for example, right? We're we're miles away from those, or kilometers away from those TV studios in South London as we are. Let's look um, at the response of the the staff member at the Institute for Economic Affairs. This is Reem Ibrahim's response.
6: This is some kind of wild conspiracy that he's incredibly obsessed with. And look, I appreciate that this is the kind of thing that you're obsessed with individually. I would like to actually talk about the policy matters at hand, because I actually would like to talk about the way in which people in this country are suffering. And as a result who of- are you talking Myself, I'm talking oh, about really? myself. And you just actually. happen to
4: be employed by the Institute of um, Economics. Absolutely, Affairs, look, you can George, be funded by
5: oligarchs. Well, George, George, you can, sure. Don't dispute her, motive. That's mean, her motives. That's what no, her motives
6: are. Let's talk about effectively what George is saying is he thinks that I'm being funded by dark lobbyists because he doesn't think that I believe the things that I'm saying, which I think is incredibly offensive for you to sit here and tell me that I don't believe the things that I'm saying. I look, I come from countries that have been decimated by socialism. I believe in individual liberty, I believe in free markets, and I believe in people having the power to spend their own money without governments taking mm. it from them so i'm incredibly offended by this insinuation and
4: like the other dark money think tank staff right. <laughs> <Is it George?
5: laughs>
1: <laughs> dahlia was george monbiot being incredibly offensive for imputing sinister mm-hmm. motives or dark money influencing what the guest was saying
0: i mean it's like critical thinking history 101 to question sources right like And uh, you know, especially it's always. I don't think there was anything untoward or 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 unusual about George Monbiot questioning the fact that this organization that is very that receives very disproportionate levels of airtime um, and say and has done for decades. You know, the Institute of Economic Affairs is not a new phenomenon. It has been shaping the political and economic landscape of this country. For a very long time, Liz Truss's disastrous budget was essentially an IEA-sponsored budget, in the sense that it was very heavily influenced. She was very heavily influenced by um, by the IEA, and the fallout of that is something that ordinary people are still paying the price for. Um, so it's certainly extremely relevant to think: well, why hasn't this think tank um, that has that led to such a, a u- unanimously understood Disaster in the economy still considered to be um, an authoritative voice on economic issues, and I think that that um, you're completely right to talk about what the kind of business model of the IEA is. The model is to put bums on seats. It's to um, essentially um, subsidise people like Reema Ibrahim, who you know started off as like a TikToks person. Um, And then was kind of picked up by by the IEA. And what they would basically say is we're going to subsidize you and pay you a wage to essentially be on call so that whenever a producer needs to put a bum on a seat or an editor needs someone to pen an article on something, you will be there and ready. The rest of us um, have jobs that we that means that we can't always be on call. and We can't always be on demand. Um, to fill these kinds of positions. And so by that way, they just have like a breadth and scale model of just if we can get enough people saying the same talking points on enough programs, if you say something enough times, it becomes true or it becomes, it gets an inflated sense of its importance and its validity. Um, And when it comes to her being so offended that George uh, Mombio would kind of, interrogate the role of the, you know, he's not really interrogating her. He's not concerned with her. He's concerned with this tendency that her presence there represents, which is that an ultimately very small and very opaque organization has gained a huge amount of influence on the political and economic imagination of this country and this idea of what is politically and economically possible. And that is something that, in a democracy, should be scrutinised, and she wouldn't be so defensive if it wasn't if it was something that she was proud of or that she felt transparent about. But ultimately, you know, I'm sure that Rima Broom believes everything that she says. That it's not. I'm not particularly. None of us are particularly concerned about what she thinks and how she feels. What we're concerned about is, as George Monbiot said, on whose behalf and for what reason are you sitting? in this very, you know, very influential seat, you know, politics live, primetime political TV, and, you know, giving your analysis, what is the the organisation and on whose authority are you here? That is a question that if you're there, you should be able to answer. I think it was very strange that it was seen as almost breaking a fourth wall for that to be questioned. Um, It kind of breaks the, there's a sort of, um Protocol um, that that breaks there, which is it's a protocol that kind of underpins the entire kind of commentator class, and I can say that as someone who has occasionally participated in it, that it is very much based on no one really asking these particular questions.
1: Yeah, so I, I think I think mean, yeah, we participate in it, but if someone asks me who funds me, I'll answer the question. You guys, right? Obviously, not to go on those shows, but to do this show, there's, there's, there's no one who pays us to be in Central London next to these, you know, uh, high high powered media studios um let's wrap up dahlia thank you so much for joining me tonight
0: thank you for having me
1: michael and thank you to all of you guys for tuning in and the show will be back tomorrow of course for now you've been watching navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navarra media go to navarra slash support